0: You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Thanks for listening.
1: This is Grant Castleberry, Executive Director for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and I am thrilled, excited to have fellow Texan, fellow Texas Aggie, Dr. Jason Dusing. He is provost of Midwestern Seminary, also teaches historical theology, church history, uh, and he's a CBMW board member. So he was in town, and uh, it was great to uh, get you in here and get you on the show.
2: Well, thanks so, for having me. I mean, as we were just talking, I feel like I'm in the, the Kentucky version of the Texas Embassy, so I should have brought my passport and we could have our own uh, Texas party right here. You know,
1: it's always it's so interesting. Uh, just I know most listeners aren't going to be interested in this, but they're uh, you know Texans and especially Texas Aggies are particularly prideful, like like many other pe- alumni from from other schools. But uh, just the number of Aggies that are out there in Christian ministry that are leading. You know, we talked about it. I think at lunch, uh, Chris Tomlin. Uh, ben Stewart, uh, and then there's the whole Chris Osborne pipeline. Many people don't know about Chris Osborne, but he's a faithful pastor right. down in College Station, and just who who are all the pastors that yeah, you know, that Mott. have come out from that pipeline. Yeah,
2: Greg Mott, Kevin Eckert, Nathan Leno, Richard Piles.
1: Matt Carter,
2: Matt Carter. Of course, you've got Philip Bethencourt at the ERLC now, and um, it's a handful of people. Yeah, you know, all all over. It's it's really fun, and, and we joke about it, and you know, there's a deep connection there. Yeah. Um, but it really speaks to really a movement of God happening mm. and still happening in many ways yeah. on campus. I mean, I trusted Christ as a freshman there Yeah, as a direct result of, you know, the things that God was I doing. I think
1: this week they're having breakaway ministries, which is a on-campus Bible mm-hmm. study there in the, uh, the baseball field, blue ball, blue bell field. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be full. So I think they're going to have, you know, fourteen, fifteen thousand yeah, 15,000 amazing students there. Yeah. One thing uh, I noticed you're wearing your green socks. One thing uh, it's kind of a, uh, Jason Ducing trademark uh, is the green socks the the green ink you know the uh, the green sweaters? Can you kind of tell us how that got started? yeah, I
2: wish there was some really great story i first of all i 'm not a super good storyteller. Um, I write stories out better than I speak them honestly green 's my favorite color, part of what it comes down to, and um, I had a pair of green socks. I wore them one of the days in which I wore them. Um, I was sitting on a platform in Chapel, Seminary Chapel, right. and they were brighter. But this is green, out Southwestern. Southwestern. Seminary. And so when you're sitting there in front of a bunch of millennial students in Chapel, it draws attention. So it kind of yeah. became a little small social media phenomenon. And, uh, and then I just started receiving them as gifts, green uh-huh. socks. So now it's almost an obligation where I enjoy them. It's my favorite yeah. color, but it's, you know.
1: Did Dr. Patterson say anything to you about that or
2: I know he didn't I think he got a kick out of it yeah. he didn't really say anything to it but yeah. literally in a, my sock drawer not that you know the world needs to see that um, yeah. or anything but it's all green I mean that's basically all I have so. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah.
1: You're known uh for your work with Adoniram Judson uh American church history Baptist history so just kind of many people talk about complementarianism as a new construct a construct that John Piper and Wayne Grudem and Dorothy Patterson invented in the 1980s. And certainly the word is new, uh, but the doctrines go much deeper. So can you kind of talk about just maybe some figures from the past that have modeled complementarianism well and taught that well?
2: Yeah, I think one of the ways when you start talking about the history of Christianity and you're looking at things or looking for models of complementarianism, and of course, you're primarily the way you're going to do that is in, is in the home and specific marriages, and you know, one of the blessing and curses, frankly, of studying the history of Christianity is those people are fixed in time, um, they're passed away, they're not changing, and so what we know about them are the facts, and so you have examples of great Christian heroes who didn't have great marriages and didn't take care of their family. Um, we want to look at them as graciously as we can, understanding the context in which they live, but also recognizing you know, that they were not perfect in those areas, and then you have remarkable uh, hmm. um, couples that are, you know, models even for our own day, not right. just because they lived in Victorian England and things were it was a more conservative world or anything like that, but simply because they were trying to live out um, the gospel of Christ in in a marriage relationship. And so, you see that in different settings, in different places, all through the time. To to mention the 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 individual, the what we call the pioneer American missionary wasn't right. technically the first, but really the first to be sent by a mission board, Adoniram Judson. In the early 19th century, he actually through the course of his life would have three marriages, not all at the same time, but uh, was widowed twice and remarried uh, each time. And all of those marriages, uh, as some who've written on those things try to show, were just exemplary. And in many ways they had to be to do Mm -hmm. what he did and survive, um, you know, for decades on the mission field, that the marriage uh, the healthy marriage is needed to serve as a foundation for um, not only the home and, and protection and and coming along alongside one another, encouraging one another, but even for the proclamation of the gospel. The the marriages would stand out um, to the to the cultures around them. Um, so all of his marriages, in their own way, were were examples of what we now call complementarianism, um, where the two individuals are truly complementing one another by serving in their biblically designed yeah. roles.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I just remember from Reading to the Golden Shore biography of Mm -hmm. Adoniram Judson, just the sacrifice that Adoniram had for his wives um, and then what they did for him. You know, there's the first with his first wife. What was what was her name?
2: Well, she her name was Anne, uh, but she was also called Nancy. It's kind okay. of strange. I don't know yeah. how you get the nickname out of that. Well, but remember, she...
1: Yeah, he gets arrested and he's in the gallows, and she sacrifices everything and is going out to, uh, to feed him and and help him, and ends up really dying of now mal- malnourishment in the process.
2: Right. So she, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. They were, they were sort of caught in a Burmese British war because they were Americans the Burmese couldn't verify whether they were Americans or British and so he was actually taken to prison as a result of that. This is right at the peak where he is laboring night and day to translate the Bible into the language of the people. It's it's the most prized position they have. So they arrest him and take him away. She grabs the documents that he's working on, and rolls them up and puts them inside of a pillow. Yes, to I remember com- that. Confiscate yep. them. Yep. She travels miles to, to try to track him down to see where he is. And basically, the reason he survives these torturous prison settings is because she does through bribery of prison guards to allow him to have time to come out of the sweat box, to bring him food, to um, give him the pillow so that he can uh, keep an eye on the manuscripts through a, a course of things. She's she's she is uh, attempting to nurse their youngest child at this point. The child will pass away as a result of all this. So, just immense, immense self-sacrifice.
1: And then when she dies, he really goes into a semi-depression of grief, right? Yeah. Where he's out in the jungle, basically, really grieving. Like, what was what was that like?
2: Yeah, he. I mean, much like you described, he really came to the brink of just mental, physical, spiritual devastation. Hmm. Um, he was living out in the woods and even dug his own grave and just sort of sat on the edge of it, whether he was contemplating taking his own life or just hoping he would, you know, we, you know, have all the documents, but he went through this entire sort of, you know, rejection of himself. He wrote home and said, anything I've ever written home, destroy, um, honorary doctorates that he'd received from the States. He's a brilliant Mm man, received all his accolades. He destroyed all that some ways that's one of the greatest tragedies because the the sources we have to put together yeah. his life are severely limited because of this period of of destruction but really brought him to the to the brink and he there were some people who were sort of watching him he didn't know it to somewhat protect him but by God's grace over a period of time he worked his way through that and it was actually after that moment that he saw some of the most fruit for the gospel um as a result of coming out of that actually at the the time on the back end of that
1: yeah it speaks it's just such a contrast to, for example, this week's issue of Time Magazine says, Is it the end of monogamy mm-hmm. when you compare these figures of the past that are so committed to their marriages and surrender to the other person and really l lo- and, and loving that person like Christ loved the church and and the the wife submitting her life as a true helpmate? You know, it's just such a contrast to what we see today.
2: No, and and, and they knew it. They knew that's what it would take at a young age. There's a hmm. there's a copy of a letter that Adoniram wrote to Anne's uh, father, his future father-in-law, when he was requesting permission to propose. It's it's really an emotional thing to read because he's essentially saying, this is in 1812, um, like your daughter's hand in marriage. If if you grant that, just so you, in about a month's time, we will leave, and and likely will never come back. And he's sort of outlying. You know, I'm not only asking to to take your daughter in marriage, but I'm basically asking to take her away for the sake of the gospel. And he sort of went mm. and, but they're in this this whole picture of he knew that's what he needed to survive and to fulfill fill, fulfill God's call in his life was this this helper. Yeah, um, and she needed it as well. It's she an was, incredible yeah, sacrifice. It's
1: amazing. It's really really amazing what God worked in their hearts to do. So one of the other things. That uh, you do for CBMW is you edit the journal, mm-hmm. and can you kind of give listeners an idea of what type of uh, journals are going to be coming out here in the next year? Yeah, absolutely. The no, line? the journal
2: is is really a a labor of love. It's something that um, I've really enjoyed doing, in part because as a seminary student, I have benefited from it immensely. Uh, just to tell briefly, kind of my own story, as a seminary student at Southeastern Seminary. I was working um, in the pastor's office at First Baptist Durham with Mm -hmm. Andy Davis, and um, that church in its first five years really went through an intense struggle over the issues of gender and authority in the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Davis knew what he believed and was kind to kind of walk me through the key biblical texts in building a case for complementarianism as he was preparing to kind of walk the deacons through those same things. And it's through that process that I discovered CBMW and benefited immensely and started oh. attending conferences and, and different things like this. And the journal was a key component of, of instructing me in that. So here's a seminary student who's benefited immensely from the journal, yeah. now able to help shape it uh, that's, for future seminary that's, students.
1: That's great. Yeah. So yeah.
2: It's, really, it's really a joy. We had, um, since I became the editor last year, we had one issue come out. So mm-hmm. far, we'll have the next one come out. It was out.
1: the first issue back
2: in print first issue back in print, which Dr. Strand and yourself are very supportive of, and, and which I, I love, you know, oftentimes journals are not going that way. Um, thankfully, through the generous resources that are given to CBMW, we're able to do that. And, you know, just like I do, I mean, we're sitting around in a room here full of books. I mean, people are more likely to happen upon a journal type periodical if it's in print and read things they may not read if it, they were just trying to pick and choose through a PDF online.
1: It's interesting that that story you mentioned about Dr. Andy Davis, um, because a lot of the feedback that we get about the journal is just pastors. Pastors asking questions, asking questions about transgenderism, how they're going to respond to uh, an issue where maybe a couple comes to them for counseling and they're saying, you know, we're homosexual and we want to join the church. And, you know, we're, we're wanting to answer those questions truthfully, winsomely, and lovingly. And I think the journal, uh, especially the 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 past journal that you edited has gotten outstanding feedback. So uh, for pastors listening, how can they get the journal?
2: Well, I, see, I mean, for the first place, we just, of course, go to the CBMW website and they can find out all the information they need to know there to subscribe. Uh, we would welcome even there at that point requests or uh you know this is an, a topic or an issue that we would love to hear more about um the the beauty of cbmw is we're able to speak to a lot of things culturally the issues that are summarized in the danvers statement speak to a broad array of issues and mm-hmm. we'd love to, to know um more about those kinds of things in many ways grant i feel like um one of my I get to have one of my dream jobs, which would be to be the general manager of a baseball team. I mean, the yeah. editor, an <laughs> editor of a journal, yeah. is essentially that, which you get yeah. the privilege of doing, is assembling the best players or authors in the world, and have them write things uh, like this last issue of the journal. I mean, what Dr. Strain and his vision, some mm-hmm. of the other authors, uh, Dr. Lino at Southwestern Southwestern Seminary, you get to put all these players on the yeah. field and let them do their thing. So. So, you know, you send us the topics that you want to hear and, you know, we'll delight to try to assemble an all-star team to to speak to those.
1: Fantastic.
2: One hopeful issue that we'll see in 2016, 2016 will mark the 25th anniversary of the the initial 1991 volume of Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. That's right. um, Which was a compilation volume edited by Dr. Piper and Dr. Grudem, but consisted of, uh, you know, again, another all-star team worth of authors really, really speaking to these issues and with one voice at a key time. Uh, following the completion of the Danvers Statement. So we hope to to honor that anniversary in a former fashion in one issue of the journal in 2016.
1: You mentioned the Danvers Statement, and I love how Midwestern four or five months ago adopted the Danvers Statement as a, an official confessional statement for the school. Can you kind of explain first what the Danvers Statement is, and then how the thinking behind how y'all decided to adopt the Danvers Statement?
2: Yeah, well, the Danvers Statement was simply, it's its a very brief statement that was comprised uh, in Danvers, Massachusetts in the late 1980s by many of these same figures that provided the initial leadership to the council. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a helpful statement that basically articulates what is meant by complementarianism and what is not meant by complementarianism. Right. And um, it's so helpful to have that tool and resource because you're able to say at a, at a church level or a seminary level to say, this is what we mean. This is what we right. don't mean. Uh, but in our own, in my own context, in, in a seminary owned and operated by the Southern Baptist Convention, we're a confessional school uh-huh. already. Uh, we join with five other schools and stand strongly to the commitment of our confessional document, the Baptist Faith and Message mm-hmm. 2000. All faculty at all six schools are required to to teach in accordance with, and not contrary to, and mm-hmm. even to sign that subscribe that they will do this. Um, we're joining some of our sister seminaries. We're not the first, uh, but we wanted to to join them and also using the Danvers Statement as well as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy as confessional guidelines that support the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So we're required to to right. agree to the BFNM. We use the Danvers as a guideline to kind of come alongside. Uh, the BFNM speaks to complementarity. It um, speaks to marriage and family. It speaks very clearly to those things. At a seminary level though, when you have teachers and professors teaching a variety of topics at deeper levels, uh, you need a tool that's going to be able to say, "Okay, here's what we, here's how we understand the BFNM to speak to those issues." The Denver Statement is a helpful guide. Okay, so we use it as guidelines to come alongside and and do so proudly, and 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 that's not just something. It came through the vision of our president, Dr. Jason Allen, mm-hmm. um, but it's it had to be something that the Board of Trustees as a whole affirmed and wanted and they, to. And they, and they did, and that's the recent action that you're.
1: What you're type of to. feedback have you gotten from that?
2: Well thankfully I mean again it's uh, truthfully at Midwestern that posture has been something that's already been in place that's right. already been the practice of the school so in many ways this was a formalizing of what was already there mm-hmm. so this isn't wasn't a reformation or some right. sort of really changing so really what I'm hearing is oh we're so I'm so glad we did that that's finally you know brought clarity to what we're already doing mm-hmm. in a way that we can now state clearly who we are and who we are so it's Actually, I think it brought a measure of relief wouldn't be the right word, but a measure of help yeah. to people, professors who are trying to explain to students or to churches who may not quite understand um, some of the conservative views of the Southern Baptist Convention. They can say, here's actually right. what we mean by these things.
1: So to traditional Baptists, maybe that are thinking, you know, no creed, but the Bible. Why Why is it so important to have the Chicago Statement, the the BFMM 2000 uh, the Danvers statement, why is it important to have those confessional guidelines there?
2: Yeah, well, again, you can unpack that in a manner of hours, but you know, simply we're sitting here on the campus of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. This was the first seminary formed by Southern Baptist, and it was formed intentionally as a confessional school. So not all seminaries were started that way, but the schools started by the Southern Baptist mm-hmm. Convention were. And basically they were saying, these are going to be our guardrails. These are going to be the things that keep us from doctrinal error. And the founder and first president of Southern Seminary, James P. Boyce, that was his entire vision, was that you know, this is going to be the thing that's going to keep us grounded to the truth. Right. And the famous story of this school and the other schools is that they drifted from that, but the only way in which they were able to actually be brought back into accountability is because they had that confessional mandate put forward. So
1: it's Which they weren't abiding by. They weren't abiding by, right. but
2: but it was in place to be able to, to bring them back. So it's... Um, as I s- tell the faculty and the faculty tell me, we delight that we're a confessional institution. Yep. We want that accountability. We will sign that document proudly uh, anywhere, anytime, um, because it it speaks to the churches who we are and who we are not and who we're going to be. It's In many ways, it's the most important thing to know about um, the schools of the Southern Baptist Convention is that they are confessionally rooted.
1: Well, I was just so encouraged when y'all adopted the Chicago statement, the Danvers statement, and, and just speaks so highly of Midwestern and, and the, direction that that school is going. So that was incredibly exciting. If I am a young man or young woman and I'm feeling called to ministry, uh, what, are some things, what are some things that I would consider about Midwestern?
2: Well, again, I would encourage any, any student who's considering a call to ministry to see that first as a call to prepare. And, um, you know, we're not sitting here saying that to be qualified to be a pastor, you have to have a certain degree. Um, but we as an instrument or an arm of a denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention are saying that while you're not you're qualified by the biblical parameters, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, right. um, seminaries come alongside to help people prepare and, um, and they provide the tools they need to do this. So if someone's thinking through a call to ministry, I would first of all think it in terms of a call to prepare. But also think of it in terms of, of now is the time to prepare, that it's right. not something to delay or, or to put off. There's there's never a better time to prepare than now. And thankfully, really, with the the blessings, I would say, of online education, which which we all believe is secondary to moving to a campus and sitting mm-hmm. in a residential classroom. But online education of today is not the online ed- education of even 10 years ago mm-hmm. or what was rolling out when you were at Texas A&M or something like right. this. It's It's really come a long way. And the way we think of online education is a, a wonderful on-ramp for someone to get engaged in preparation now, and then hopefully transition that to a, to a residential option soon. So it's a call to prepare. It's something that should not be delayed to be to be done now. And really, again, depending on their their specific denomination or tradition, I would encourage them to look at any of the six Southern Baptist seminaries, uh, because some of the things we we're already talking about, mm-hmm. you know what you're getting at those schools. Right. Um, they're all populated by professors who affirm inerrancy, affirm complementarity, who affirm, who affirm um, the things in which we're talking about here. So any of the schools would be wonderful for 21st mm-hmm. century ministry.
1: So what would you say that you are most excited about right now at at Midwestern?
2: Well, honestly, it's the students, um, mm-hmm. the both the quality and um and their makeup both men and women that are coming from all over the country and but specifically the region southern baptist designed to put midwestern seminary in kansas city for a purpose and in many ways it's it's taken these decades it it saw a recovery of this in the mid-1990s um remarkably so and since that time it's been building and now we, we're seeing a culmination of Folks from that region, from those churches, seeing Midwestern mm. as their seminary, and, and coming to school. So the, the students are what
1: yeah, it's exciting. What
2: what really excite me the most.
1: Darren Patrick's doing stuff with y'all now, and yeah,
2: we have an extension campus at the Journey in St. Louis, um, as well as one near the University of Iowa and Ames. Wow,
1: Iowa. wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's it's been a pleasure having you. Oh, my
2: you. my delight. Anytime I can come to the Texas Embassy here in Kentucky, <laughs> I'll be glad to visit and come by. So.
0: Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio. We would like to tell you about two exciting upcoming opportunities at CBMW. In March, CBMW is hosting a ski conference for young Christian leaders at Snowbird, Utah. Speakers will include Todd Wagner and Matt Carter. Also, in April, CBMW is hosting a T4G pre-conference, The Beauty of Complementarity. The event will feature 27 speakers in two days, including John Piper, Jackie Hill Perry, Mary Cassian, Alistair Begg, and Darren Patrick. Please visit cbmw.org for more details. Again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to visit us at cbmw.org, where you will find more resources to equip you to think biblically. While you are there, you can make a tax-deductible gift in support of the ministry. Again, thanks for listening.